So Narayan is always telling me that I get mired in the preamble and never get to the point. <laughs> so, uh, but I want to back up enough so that <laughs> we have come context to be able to understand. <laughs> Remembering that I'm framing the path, the journey of the Dharma from form to formlessness. Form is that density of, of in concentration of around the a self-centered life. And that's not a disparaging word. It's literally a self-centered life. And uh, in the heaviness of it, the burden of it, the struggles within that, the uh, sense of, of, of if there's any salvation, it's going to come through my effort. And everything I uh, steer myself towards has to either be friendly or uh, an, a, a, an obstruction or an obstacle to where I'm going. So there's always problems, and to, problems to resolve, things to negotiate, uh, it's the, it's the navigational component. When you're a form and you have other forms in front of you, it's, there's a lot of navigation, right? And that density and packaging of ourselves in very, very, very burdensome and struggling ways is what we're calling form. And it's the way that most of us begin the spiritual journey. <clears throat> and then formlessness is the sense of abiding presence that many of us have sensed in ourselves. In fact, Narayan and I were speaking about it uh, this evening and how many of you, not just a few, have been willing to follow the instructions as has been given this week and have really come into your own understanding of formlessness and that abiding presence and understand the new paradigm that that brings forth, not the burden of of self-centeredness, but a, a, a sense of interconnectedness, a sense of of being a part of and of being uh, inclusive within your dharma. It's beautiful to see, and 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 there are many others who uh, stay within the the confines of the strategies of, of self-effort and uh, the struggles within that. And uh, there seems to be, uh, from my vantage point, a kind of threshold that at a certain level of experience, uh, it's almost too late for the person. The veil of the self-burden has been so firmly fixed and the salvation of that is within one's own ambition and resolve that there's just, it's almost as if there's no way to access that person once that veil has descended. Knowing that, many, myself, I was one very much, a person very much like that, and I had to go through years and years of very strenuous practice uh, where I was literally tears streaming down my face with the uh, conclusion, uh, the psychological conclusion, I was a complete failure. I just couldn't do this, what was being asked of me. And, uh, and from that, uh, uh, from the absolute rock bottom of that, 
of finding some salvation, some way out, some, some breath of air. I had to go through that, and I think at the time I didn't realize why, but I think in teaching I understand why I had to go through that so that I could recognize uh, that fact in others as well. Uh, so there, there, wherever we find ourselves within, we're, if, if we have blinders on now and we really think that what we need to do is to struggle our way out of form, uh, what you will find and why it will bottom out is that that tension associated with the struggle out of form is really the way form is formed. And so as you flex your muscles, the burden of the, of the object becomes unbearable. And some of us know words like ambition. You know, there's, we're sophisticated enough to know not to be ambitious because that, that's so obviously uh, an arrogant way of looking at your journey. But there are very subtle ways that this reaffirms itself over and over and over again. And most of those are, very, are strategies from a particular paradigm that we operate almost uh, thoughtlessly within, absent-mindedly within, conditionally within. And the perceptions that we perceive from, from that uh, conditioning, where uh, we're, it's a given that I'm here and you're there that I am somewhere where is obviously uh, unliberated and that I need to travel a tremendous journey from me in order to get to a place where I am. And that this it's, uh, requires a, an enormous amount of effort along the way for that salvation to occur. And so we, we have that. We, we hear counter-arguments to that. But when we think in that way, when our life is constructed from the paradigm of objects, it's impossible for us not to think in that way. Because that's just that's the way a form thinks. It thinks in terms of obstructions. It thinks in terms of problems. It thinks in terms of evaluation and comparison. It thinks in terms of time, how far I am from and how long it will take me to get there. That's intrinsic in the way we see. Now I stop there. Because this is, may, may well be the last time I get your ear. And I want it to be... I want to offer you another opportunity. This is not, we will not find salvation within that paradigm. It is not to be found. Form, there is no passageway out of form. There's no, there's no way to break out of that paradigm. Because all the logic within the paradigm reaffirms the way the paradigm is. It comes from the paradigm. When we see me here and you there, there is a certain built-in logic that comes from that perception. And when our practice works from that perception, 
then it will work to reformulate ourselves. But some of you, much to our delight, are not tinged as deeply within, within that uh, strategy of, of working yourself out. And it's like, uh, you know, when you pop corn, pop popcorn, like you hold it over the fire for a while, but some of the kernels very early on go <laughs> And then much later, So it's quite a delight to see early popcorn. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very sweet, actually. Some, I mean, in every level of experience here, I, a group of the very, the most beginning, somebody will say timidly to me in an interview, I think I sense something. I sense it. It seems very close. Could it be so? It's so close. It's so simple. The philosophies of the ancient traditions have embedded us within a particular perspective of lifetimes and cultivations. That none of us, what it does is it activates the sense of doubt and say, how could I possibly be ready? How could I possibly, possibly be ready? And so there's a, there's a kind of way that we approach our practice that is only a half attempt. Because it couldn't, it could, you know, it's, we're just... We just don't hold any potentiality for ourselves, any possibility for ourselves. And then there is a whole group of people who are practicing, as I had mentioned in a previous talk, as a means in itself. Practice has taken on the purpose of practice. And it has its own benefits. It has its own strategies. It has its own rewards. And so we begin to compare the experience, the subtlety of the experience we've had as compared to the subtlety of experience that somebody else has had. And that somehow acknowledges the uh, 
our capacity to practice. May May I just say that there are experiences that do come from a samadhi-based practice. An internal, because it's samadhi, it's an internal practice. An internal practice does have a certain, does have a certain sequenciation of experiences that occur. We see a Nietzsche change at almost a molecular level. We see anatta, the falling away of self and the building it back up, almost as a visual product. We get caught in areas and long durations of our own misery and see only from the world of that through the perception of misery. In these dukkha-contained phases of practice. And this convinces us, because that's the outline, it's in the Buddha, three characteristics. This is, but it's an internal world that we're creating that replicates scriptural reference. Internal. But freedom is not an internal experience. It's not one way as opposed to another. It's not internal as opposed to external. In fact, it's the resolution of those polarities that is freedom. And yet we're driven because of the, really, the traditional history of this tradition, of this lineage, to replicate the mistakes, I believe, of the past. My sense is that there's a quicker and easier way out of this. That we can do this thing. And we can do it quickly. And we can do it now. If we reframe the problem so that it's accessible. But if you pile your logic and all of the teachers that you've heard and all of the scriptures that you've read against this simplicity, it does not stand a chance against it. What's the paradigm, the new paradigm look like, you see? The Buddha, I think, in his wisdom, is taking us through each of these foundations to show us, to shift paradigms within those four foundations. A paradigm shift is occurring. Let me show you how that works. In the first paradigm, he places in front of us the most personal object we'll ever face. The most dense object, my body, with all of its evaluation and comparison, 
with all of its psychological hi history embedded within it. And he has us enter that body with an explorative zeal. Not from the drudgeries of my past, burdened by my emotional history, but if with the lightness of inquiry, of looking and seeing anew, what is this thing? And so already we're breaking apart the encrustation. You might say we are, we are flying free of a kind of enclosed way we have believed ourselves to be through that exploration. We are breaking away from the pasts and how it has held us captive within the body, within the tissue fragments of our history. Because when we enter the body, we have to deal with our history. We have to deal with the scar tissue of the body, all of the ways that it has been damaged. It has been brutalized. And all of that is part of what we enter. But we don't enter with the heavy burden of the past. We enter with the lightness of a question, with the lightness of, a, of an investigative pointing. What is this? What's going on in here? It seems so dense, but when I actually enter it, it it's air, it's space. It's not what I thought it was. If I enter it without knowledge or memory, which are the words from the first foundation, see the body without knowledge or memory, it doesn't even maintain the shape that I associate with the body in the mirror. So now already there's this lightness. Wow, I'm not what I thought I was. And so then we enter the second foundation, which shows how the nothing that we have now accessed in the body, the space, wherever our mind turns, it dissolves into space. It does not stay of substance. So how did this nothing become the something of the body? How did I become me? How did that form? What how did all this take the shape that it seems to be in that recounts my history so clearly as I stand in front of the mirror? That's the second foundation. It invites us to see anew, to see this as a conditioned response. As certain conditions arise, then so does the sense of I. And the deeper the impact, the deeper the burden of form, the stronger that sense of I. And the lighter, the quieter, the formlessness of, appears, the shallower or more dispersed sense of I there is. And that just doesn't pass us by as some minor experience. We're beginning to see the shape the self takes in relationship to the form that it's assuming. And that from the crystallization of this very, very minor nuanced feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral brings out a whole formulation of ideas and memories 
all moving in the direction and leaning into that feeling tone. And it's the product of all of that together in which I claim myself to be. But where is it in that? Because all that can be felt, all that can be known. All of that can be separated out and seen individually, none of which there's a me within. So how did something, the question in the second one, how did nothing become something? How does the past replicate itself in the present is another way of saying that same thing. And he's showing us how that formulates. In his words, through his formulation, there are other ways to do this. But what he's really telling us is that the belief in the form, the belief in ourselves, and the perception of separate of separate weights, masses, is mistaken. And so we can't think in that way. He's, he's, he's suggesting that we release the conceptual model on which that form is based. We release it. If you keep thinking, you just keep pulling back the same tendencies back into itself, reformulating yourself. When we weigh in with judgment, that's chasing a feeling tone. When you evaluate yourself, when you compare yourself, all we're doing is taking the feeling tone and certifying its truth. That's what we're doing. And guess what comes out at the other end of that? I'm not sitting as high or straight as that person. That's the product that comes out of that. How can I get better? How can I sit better than she sits? I never sit as well as her. It's true. (laughs) Thank you. So the the lacing of the narrative around us, you see. It's like forming a, a noose on which we can be sure that we're going to die. When you are when you live as a separate entity, then the the laws come to bear upon that separate entity in the form of suffering, but also in the form of illness, sickness, and death. Those are the laws that come to bear upon an individuated identity. That's what happens. The Buddha ventured out from his home so that he wouldn't, so that he could resolve that problem. And the resolution of it is in these four foundations. It's beautifully stated. It's just, I believe, misperceived or misunderstood. So now he's got us looking at the body differently and not seeing the mass and weight that we think it to be and the solidity of form that we believe ourselves to be. And he's also taken apart the sense of me so that it it doesn't have a center pole in there. 
It's just a bunch of confluent conditions that when all of them are rising together, claim some orchestrated, or, or uh, claim some uh, uh, um, conductor to the orchestra. Then he takes us into the third foundation. See, it's not finished yet. This is, this is where, it, for me, it gets really interesting. So then he says, okay, the narrative's still a problem in here, right? <clears throat> because we've been looking at the different aspects of how the self is formed and the sense of... He says, okay, so just release yourself from any alternative perspective of the mind than what is actually arising. Don't weigh in. Just see. Just see exactly as it's manifesting. So there's no alternative to whatever is, a, is arising. Confusion? Confusion. That's it. Don't try to offset or counterbalance the confusion. Just see. Ignorance, forgetfulness, arrogance, clarity, concentration, not concentrated. We're not trying to offset. I've got to be more concentrated. We're not trying to offset any of those qualities. So the dialogue of self comes when one weighs in and says, this is not the way I want to be. I want to be more concentrated. That's where the narrative takes off because there's a feeling tone associated with not being concentrated that is unpleasant. And so we spin the yarn of self around what I need as an individual entity to be what I perceive as spiritual, which is concentrated. And so the, narr- the spiritual narrative gets moving. No better than a worldly narrative, to be honest. And so this weighing in, this comparison, he is shutting that down in the third foundation, which is a very interesting foundation because it simply eliminates all techniques. And one fell swoop, he's taken his hand and said, okay, you know, there have been places for techniques. I've taught it, taught it for 50 years. And now he takes his hand and he wipes, whips it all, clears the table. Enough of that. Let's look at the bare fact of what is arising without any counterindication. And so the energy is withdrawn from the narrative because the narrative can't speak if it's only this. There's only this. There's no story to tell about this. It's the end of the egoic image that runs upon content, that runs upon the struggles within content. He's showing us something here. So now we enter the fourth foundation. 
to enter the fourth foundation, I want to give you an analogy of watching a movie. When we're watching a movie, there's a screen, right? And there is an image that is placed upon the screen called the movie. The image on the screen, series after series, picture after picture, contains a story associated with the movement of those images. Now, those images are really still photos, but if you run them fast, they have a story associated with this. I want you to put yourself in this. Okay? If you run fast, if you run fast moment after moment, blurring each moment so that it's not a thing in and of itself, it's not an arising of itself, then you have a series of sequenzations which convey the story of your life. What's interesting is that that series of pictures is so fascinating that it captures our attention, doesn't it? It's like the story is, we're raptured with the story. It's like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> Wasn't that great? This should Academy Award here. Right? What have we missed? We have missed the screen on which the images are placed. We have no interest in the screen whatsoever. We're not there to watch the screen. <laughs> try, try when you're at a movie to see the screen. You're just not tuned to see the screen. The paradigm we're in does not see screen. You have to stop completely the motion of the movie in order to perceive the screen. But the movie is so compelling in its movement and its storyline, who stops? Who will stop it? So I miss it. There's no, there's no way I'm going to. So this is analogous. The fourth foundation, the stillness, the presence on which all of life is based is always there as a foundation for, for the entire movement of life to take place. But who cares about it when the compelling interest we have is in the chapter after chapter outlay of my narrative? Exactly like a movie. It's a very close analogy. And we want the spiritual component to be part of the narrative. We're, fin we're just going to keep it going, and we're just going to keep following it, and hopefully it turns into something that resolves whatever the problem is on the screen <laughs> as a final chapter and end product of me being free. I have to... The, the projector has to have an awful big reel of film because this thing really goes on and on and on and on. And what else am I missing? I don't have enough calm. I don't have enough quiet. We're two and a half hours into this movie and what else don't I have is the scavenger hunt. Oh, you don't, and I don't have that and I've got seven other things to collect and I've got this and that and on and on and on and on. And how many successes have we gotten here? 
Have we ever asked ourselves, what's the success rate of this? Isn't that a, wouldn't that be a question you would ask anything else of? What, how many successes? Let me see the liberated ones. <laughs> Next reel, please. Listen, it's funny because it's so pathetic. <laughs> the resolution is in the screen. And to do that, you have to stop. It has to be, you have to stop. Now there's just this. The whole thing is turned around now because you're not caught in the motion of the story. The whole thing is turned around because now it's not individuated frames. Even though it's ne- the film was never individuated. It was all celluloid. It was all... There was never any division in there except the perceptual belief that there was. But once it's stopped, that is known. So here, one sentence about each of the foundation. The first foundation, I am seeing this thing called body. I am seeing this. First foundation. I am seeing this. I am seeing this. Second foundation. What is this and what is the eye that sees? One sentence. What is this and what is the eye that sees? That's the second foundation. Third foundation. Just seeing. Fourth foundation. Nothing but seeing. Returning to the metaphor of the film. The film and the screen were never separate. They are one and the same thing. There were not two things going on. It was the motion that kept us thinking in terms of them being separate. But the motion really came from still presentations repeated a number of times very quickly that caught our attention as if it were in movement. But at no time was the film ever different than the screen it was placed upon. It was just an image on that screen. Now the paradigm shifts completely. Because now everything is seen as the presence it was and has always been. Not as the individual forms that have caught my eye. In the third foundation, the just seeing, there was still a sense of form and formlessness being separate from one another. In the fourth 
foundation, form and formlessness are seen as identical. The problem is resolved. Does that take years of practice? Or does that take a resolution of heart and willingness to see? If we align ourselves within the paradigm shift, not within the old paradigm. The old paradigm says you have more to do because the next frame is about to occur. How are you going to present yourself in the next frame, in the frame after that, in the frame after that, and on and on and on? If that's the way you think, then there will always be the next frame in which your presentation will be secured. To switch paradigms is to see immediately the screen. And we have suggested that, this course, for you just to stop. Whatever is going on, stop. Don't let it compel you forward into the next state of mind and the next state of mind after that. Arrest those states of mind. Just stop with them. Don't let them mean something about you. Just see them. Stop within your seeing. And what? guess what happens? Lo and behold, the screen appears. Have you not felt it here for this week? Everywhere. Everywhere. Nothing fools you anymore. It's all movement. It's all images moving. It's all the formless. It has always been the formless. The sacred is... Everything is sacred. And the joy that arises from the knowing of that, from fully participating and dwelling and abiding within that, how far can that be? How distant is the screen from the movie? It's exactly that close. Never put any distance between yourself and your freedom. Never assume a time of many lifetimes, of duration. Never. Because to do so is to hook your vantage point to the series and sequences of images. When this thing can be proved immediately in your willingness to stop, Suddenly I know my way. Suddenly I understand completely my way. Suddenly I understand Buddhism from a completely different vantage point. It all makes complete sense. Because in movement there is suffering, in stillness there is none. 
which is exactly the same continuum as from form to formlessness. But we have to be told this, you see. Many of us, if we're told that in the sequenciation of images there'll be a resolution to the movie, then we will buy into that and we'll just keep playing it out until we have heard that there is a stopping. And then you know what happens? You know what that means. Like you've never done it before. May it be so for all of us. Let us sit together for a while. See, how, how far deeply have each of us gone into the real where so much of our, our worth and purpose has now been tied up into the time we've spent. You see, it's, it's like, oh, I, I'm just going to keep going because I've spent so much time doing this already. It, it would somehow negate the purpose of my life up until now. See, those are the questions we have to resolve in ourselves. Practice for practice sake. Because it's fun coming and joining in and sitting this retreat and that retreat and another retreat one week, five weeks, ten weeks, thirty weeks, two years, ten years. We don't even want to see the screen. Too much water under the bridge. And yet something in our heart knows. Something in us knows that we're off course. We sense it. Follow that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.